With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 31st episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is negotiating at home, at work, and virtually. With me is Lee Thompson, the author of Negotiating the Sweet Spot, The Art of Leaving Nothing on the Table. The publisher is HarperCollins Leadership. Lee is a professor of dispute resolution and organizations at the Kellogg School of Management, Northwestern University. An acclaimed researcher, author, and speaker, she has developed several online and in-person courses on negotiation, leading teams, creativity, and virtual collaboration. Lee is a best-selling author of 10 books, including the one we're discussing here today. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we got a lot to cover. It's a wonderful book. I could easily go more than half an hour, but let's just start out and level set for people. What is this book about, you know, in brief? Well, you know, anytime you can't get what you want without the cooperation of other people, you are by definition negotiating. So what that means is, is that negotiation consumes a lot of our day. And most of us have not ever had a formal course on it or, you know, have an advanced degree, but it we're doing it um, morning, noon, and night. And the depressing research, Dan, is, is that <laughs> we know that a lot of people leave a lot of untapped potential under the table and we don't get a lot of feedback. And so I wrote this book so that all of us would feel more confident about these unscripted negotiations that occur morning, noon, and night, the workplace, the home, and our virtual life. Okay. Well, I love that because one of my favorite books is by Daniel Pink on sales. And he points out that we might think I'm not in the sales department of a major company, but we're all engaged in sales all the time just as you're suggesting we're engaged in negotiations all the time. So uh, here's a question you might not expect. 
Ambrose Bierce wrote something called The Devil's Dictionary. I am writing and crowdsourcing a book inspired by that called The Devil's Dictionary of Work, Life, and Commerce. One of my earlier guests on the show, Art Markman at the University of Texas, has contributed a diabolical definition for negotiations. So I'm going to read it here in a moment. It's quite brief. And I'd be curious for your perspective on what he might have gotten right, uh, satirical as it may be, and what might be missing or can be added to this definition. So here's his definition. Negotiations, a dignified discussion held by people dividing a pie, all of whom channel their inner five-year-old because deep down everyone wants the whole pie. You know, I, I'm smiling because I think that he's hit the, the nail on the head in terms of what I would call kind of the collective perception of negotiation. And the reason why I'm smiling, Dan, is uh, one time I was teaching an advanced executive class and a guy comes up to me, not unlike this definition, and says, if my wife emails you, tell her I'm taking a finance class. Now, this guy this guy is enrolled in my executive negotiation course, and somehow I knew exactly what was going on. His wife was scared out of her mind that her husband, who was taking my class, was going to learn these diabolical skills, come back, and win every single argument at home. And so what I try to work on really hard whenever I teach negotiation is it's not just about dividing the pie. It's about expanding the pie, building the sandbox. And that's the part that a lot of people forget about, or most of the time, they just don't think that's possible. Okay. That kind of builds into my next question, which is, um, what do people get wrong? I mean, your, your book is really about trying to find that sweet spot, and it's a cliche, but getting to truly win-win expansive solutions. What are two or three key reasons why people don't get there and how they could turn it around? I love that question because, you know, it's not about, quote, motivation. It's not about, gosh, I've just got to pull myself together and try. Most people are what I call hyper-motivated. I mean, the things that we're negotiating about, our jobs, our peace of mind uh, with our kids, with our spouse, yeah, virtually, there's not a question that we care. So the big reason why we leave value on the table is because of this uh, phenomenon. I actually studied it in my dissertation 150 years ago called the, <laughs> called the fixed pie perception, which is the usually faulty belief that, you know, whatever I want, Dan pretty much wants the opposite. And so I've got to kind of, you know, haggle things out. And that is kind of that whole idea of dividing and conquering instead of expanding. So we don't get a lot of feedback in life, Dan, that, you know, there's in some sense a win-win possible. And what I find is, is that most people think of win-win as kind of even Steven, you know, kind of equal shares, you know, you get half, I get half or whatever we're talking about, but that's technically not what win-win is. So that's why I started using this concept called the sweet spot, because I think it gets more at the idea that there's going to be a way that the two of us, or maybe if there's more parties involved, can really be a lot more satisfied and uh, rewarding outcome if we're able to do a few of these, what I call hacks that I review in the book. 
Sure, and we're going to get into some of those, but let me go to another distinction I think you bring up in the book besides this, you know, going beyond win-win to sweet spot uh, and growing the pie and so forth. You talk about scripted and unscripted negotiations. What are the implications? How are those two perhaps different? Uh, even what are their emotional implications, perhaps? Yeah, uh, that was really fun for me to do the research on that because there's some negotiations that we do in life that are so scripted, they've almost become kind of archetypal. Like if I told you, hey, Dan, I'm buying a new car today, you would probably say, you would probably have 13 stories to tell me, including sure. your neighbor. You'd prob There's probably several books written on that. Same for house buying and selling, same for job negotiations. I mean, there's movies about this, right? And so a lot of us kind of, you know, inner stage left you know, cross to, you know, the right and say this. And scripted negotiations by definition come with a script, which means there's a lot of, I don't know, preparation we could do, but they don't occur that frequently. I mean, the last time I bought a car, this is somewhat embarrassing, was 2014. So, you know, <laughs> but I've probably negotiated at least 2,800 times since then uh, in my kitchen, um, uh, virtually and in the hallways of my workplace, which I haven't gotten to be in in the past six months of shutdown. Those are the unscripted negotiations. And those are the ones that actually, I think, have much more of an impact on our well-being, um, emotional well-being, as well as financial well-being. And Given that we don't get a playbook for that or a script, we don't get a warning sign saying, I'm about to run into Dan in the mailroom, and this is the perfect opportunity to negotiate maybe, you know, our roles in the task force. How can I, in some sense, bring my best self to these impromptu unscripted negotiations? So that's what this book is about. It's about giving people tools and a framework that don't take some kind of an advanced degree or, you know, sure. game theory background. Okay. Well, so let me take the, the two scenarios you just gave me. So one is, uh, you know, the, the, the car dealership, and we have all sorts of, you know, war stories that we know or experience ourselves. So it seems to me that's a situation that could, you know, the baggage emotionally could be uh, suspicion, contempt, as opposed to running into the mail room. And suddenly it seems to me with the unscripted situations, uh, surprise could be a much bigger emotional component uh, than in other situations. H how do those kinds of emotions play into scripted versus unscripted? I think uh, the the question of emotions is is really an interesting one because for years and years, Dan, uh, the study of negotiation was pretty much done by economists and maybe some psychologists who kind of just looked at the people as kind of information processing machines, but emotions actually play quite a role. So I guess my way of answering that is um, to have self-awareness of our emotions and then to all, and then the second skill, you're an emotions expert, you know this, is to be able to, in some sense, pivot to a different emotion. Um, so for example, anger is a good one because- yep. A lot of times people get angry in a negotiation. I, you know, they feel misunderstood that they're insulted, you know, by opening offers or, you know, whatever they might be. Anger is what we call a reciprocal emotion. 
I get angry, you get a little bit more angry, and then all of a sudden we're driving off a cliff, that classic conflict spiral. So if you can somehow pivot that anger into, for example, disappointment, there could be an opening there because disappointment is what we call a complementary emotion, meaning that the person who expresses disappointment oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes elicits a response in the other person of what we call repair. Like, oh my goodness, Dan, uh, it looks like I've disappointed you. Gosh, what did I do wrong? Educate me. That's just one example of emotion. Uh, you had mentioned surprise. Um, it, it And surprise might occur when I find myself realizing I don't have the right script here. I was all prepared for a uh, a, a tough car buying negotiation. And all of a sudden I have a salesperson here who seems to be a human being and uh, maybe I need a new script. Okay. Fair enough. In fact, in the book, I mean, I, I love the whole part about anger and disappointment. And I also enjoyed uh, one of your friends, an economist really was uh, basically deriding or leaving out the role of emotions and everything. And it seemed to me quite amazing, but uh, you know, it, it's common. <laughs> it does happen. You're so personable. I have to ask this question. I'm not sure I'm going to put it in an artful way. Uh, I guess one way I could just bluntly say is, you know, in writing this book and in life, you find yourself negotiating with yourself. And I ask this in part because you you mentioned one point that uh, you allow a persona in the classroom that you are the quote unquote tall, mean lady. You can even have an acronym for it. Uh, You end the book with talking about a biking accident. Every writer a course has to make choices about what they're going to disclose, how they're going to frame their subject matter, the tone they take, how intimate, revealing they're going to be. How did you come to the style that you had for the book? And how does that maybe relate to the whole act of negotiating? Oh, wow. There's a lot there. So you're right, Dan. Um, This book was really born out of, a, I guess, a dark period in my life. So in 2018, um, I was in a bike crash. And, um, it, it was one where I'm embarrassed to say I had to, I I broke my, my pelvis in two places. I had to use a walker, you know, I, you know, that was like extremely, you know, a bad time in my life. Cause you know, I'd like to think of myself as an athlete and here I am, you know, I can't even walk across a room without assistance. And, um, there's two things I love doing in life, which is riding bikes and, and writing books. And so finally, my family said, well, you're not going to be riding a bike yep. <laughs> next six, <laughs> week, six to eight weeks. So I started, I started writing um, and I started realizing that, you know, I've written a lot of books that I use in classrooms, but I wanted to write a book about, well, how do we, how can we bring our best self to all these interactions that we have every day? What, what have all these years of research re- that I've done really mean for people? Could I put them into use? And so I started pulling together in a much more broad fashion than I ever have, not just my own research for heaven's sake, but a lot of research from other people. And it has to do with some of the research on emotion that we've talked about. It has to do with kind of upending some of this classic economic prescription, like this whole idea of the poker face and this whole idea of let them talk first. So I started, I started questioning that. And then I realized that the best way to convey anything is to tell a story. 
So I was super lonely. I couldn't ride my bike. So I started reaching out to all, all of the students who I've kept in touch with in my classes. And I, I reached out and I, I would ask them stories, uh, or I'd ask, I'd ask them to tell stories about their negotiation. And they were completely, they, people shared a lot of details, a lot of specifics uh, of their lives. So, um, with permission, you know, I included a lot of those stories in the book because I think that 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 really makes the mem that really makes skills memorable if you can put them in that context. So that's a super long-winded answer. I can go. <laughs> well, but, but part of it is, I think, in maybe gathering those stories, you started telling and revealing things about yourself, admitting that you enjoy watching reality TV. I'm oh, that's embarrassing. A, yes, I, know, I come from an academic community, and I can tell you that my first father-in-law, you know, an esteemed art professor, turns out to be someone who raised home to watch Charlie's Angels. Um, so, you know, these things are, are real, but it makes you the book more personable. And I thought part of what you're trying to do in negotiations is you, you're really trying to explore, you're trying to understand who you're dealing with, and it's not just a set of facts. And I, I thought it was part and parcel of the book, and it made it much more charming. Um, I thought you took some chances there in revealing things, and I, I, I value you for doing it. Oh, that's not nice of you to say, but yes, let it be let it be known. I do watch <laughs> The Bachelor, and as I'm watching The Bachelor, I'm realizing, oh my gosh, you know, there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of emotion here. Here's how you know. Here's how these players could maybe take it in a different direction. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to now be allow myself to be ex, you know exposed or reveal and turn. So you mentioned in the book that role playing and simulations tend to work a lot better than lecture-style training. So um, I'm going to confess that in, in uh, negotiations myself in life, I tried one recently, did not go well. Uh, I have uh, about 20 years of learnings from speeches and books I've written and so forth. And I had somebody that I knew, and I thought we could reach an agreement where he might handle the technical and marketing aspects, and I would provide essentially the IP. And it didn't go well. And if you didn't mind, I was going to try to turn the tables here for just a little bit in the interview and let you, in effect, interview me. And if you just asked a few questions, maybe you can diagnose why this didn't go well and what I did wrong and all of this, because I, I don't think I covered myself in glory here. Mm, okay. It sounds like there's a lot of rich background there. So <laughs> There would be. So I guess one of the first questions that I would ask you, and this is a question that I ask students who approach me before, during, and after class. It's amazing what people will share with you. And Dan, just to put this in a big framework, one of my favorite experiences is being in the classroom and then having somebody immediately use a skill that they've learned in a real situation. So one of the first questions I ask is, is this situation you describe, and I think you said something about kind of a marketing situation, is it a dispute or is it a, a negotiation? And the reason why I'm asking that is a negotiation is more of an opportunistic thing. Hey, Dan, you know, might, might you be interested in selling me your car? Might you be interested in representing me in a marketing, whatever? And you can say either, no, thanks, Lee, have a nice life. And I don't have any claim on you. Now, half the time, my, my students are involved in what we call disputes, which is, hey, Dan, I think you failed me. I think you wronged me. Um, I'm underimpressed with the delivery of whatever work I, th I had hired you for. And you're saying, 
hey, that that's all wrong. And then we're in a dispute situation and that's where things can get real messy and real legal uh, fast. So that's kind of one of the, I'm kind of thinking of a decision tree here and I want to know which fork to go down. Sure. I, I would say it was more the negotiation that led to some dispute in that we were going around for a while trying to realize what each other's role was going to be and what uh -huh. we were going to provide. So I, I certainly saw it as negotiation in the end. Uh, I, I realized there was a lot of black holes in our understanding between the two of us, and that's that's where it all failed. Mm -hmm. Well, then, if it is this negotiation of opportunity, then there's still a chance that we could fill in some of those blank holes, and then that's where we might, we might say, "Gosh, you know, we were working with completely different perceptions here." Uh, and one of the things that I talk about in my book is, for heaven's sake, get out the flip chart. And what I mean by that is, is that a lot of times people feel like they're having a very rich, clear, transparent conversation, but my mental model is nothing like yours. But if you and I have a flip chart or some kind of Zoom whiteboard, whatever the heck we need to use these virtual days, the, light, the statistical likelihood that we are not going to be in some kind of alignment here is a lot lower. So I've even done some casual experiments where I either give people flip charts or take them all away. And it's quite profound because words are words, but they mean uh, we can create a shared understanding if we can somehow uh, put those in a, sh uh, in a collective space. Yeah, no, I, I wish I had read your book before I had those negotiations, quite honestly, because I think we, we could have used the flip chart. We could have used a lot more exploration. I think that you, you mentioned in your book that some people come on as the hardest nails and other people come off as soft as pudding. And I'm afraid I took the latter route because I'd known this person. Actually, I'd known his wife since uh, we studied together in Italy in first grade. So I, I assumed there was going to be trust and goodwill and uh, got, got disappointed in the route. So, so, so it goes. Anyway, let me switch to maybe a little something different. We really need to make sure before we run out of time here, you got three key areas, personal life, business life, and the virtual. So let's make sure we hit each of these before we, we get done here. So I was really interested in the fact that you started your career with an MA in counseling psychology. Uh, that's part of your background. You mentioned uh, you know, various things. You, you mentioned the anger hack already, which is part of that part of the book. Do you want to go to one trap and one other hack from the personal life section of the book? And you can explain what trap and hack means as you go there. Yeah, one of the, uh, of course, I love these all. They, a lot of this is not even my research, but I've kind of culled it from a lot of my, my favorite researchers. But one thing that I've become very interested in is the work by Jared Curhan at MIT, where he studies what's it, what does it mean to be silent during a negotiation? And I got really interested in that. Because I think a lot of us have been told that when we're conversing with a loved one, this is the personal life, uh, yep. boy, you want to be engaged. You want to, you know, kind of, you want to be, you know, conversing, a lot of eye contact. And paradoxically, uh, periods of silence allow the brain to start being a lot more purposeful and process information that could lead to a sweet spot solution. And so 
that's not something that we're hardwired to do with people that we love, which is to kind of take a moment of silence, almost kind of step out of the interaction mentally so that we can step in more wholeheartedly. So that's one of my, my favorite ones. And Dan, I'm not as I'm telling the story, I'm not sure a lot of the readers are aware of like, why do exactly why do I use the term sweet spot? And uh, in the book, um, I tell the story that I learned pretty much during my first year of um, graduate study. And it's the very corny story of the two sisters and the orange. This is a kind of a famous story by Mary Parker Follett, man, management scholar. Anyway, two sisters fighting over an orange. They love each other. But you know what? There's only one orange. Things are getting heated just like they were with in your situation. You know, you knew this, you knew this person's wife. I mean, I thought we had trust. Anyway, they decide that the relationship is more important. So they cut the dang thing in half. One sister squeezes out the juice, throws the peel away. The other sister carefully zests the peel, presumably to make orange scones and throws the juice away. And then the garbage truck comes and goes. You see where I'm going. They, complete, they completely missed the sweet spot solution. Had they had that reflective moment of silence, had they asked a few questions, had they done what, in your situation, you know, kind of been a little bit more clear about their roles, they might have discovered that one of us is trying to make orange juice. One of us is trying to make something for a bake sale. Now, I know that this is a ridiculous example. I mean, who's going to make orange juice and a bake sale these days? Well, maybe me. Uh, but it's amazing how often in the classroom and in, you know, my own personal observations, I see people cut oranges in half because somehow we just think, you know what, let's go halvesies. But if we kind of take that, you know, moment of reflection and check our assumptions, we might realize we have different goals here, and both of us can meet those goals. Yeah, no, and in fact, the for those who don't know the cover of the book, uh, it does have an orange being unpeeled uh, yes. on, on the cover, so it's very similar to the book. And that even Stephen approach is actually very much what I was trying for, uh, but now I can see that there are shortcomings to that based on the insights in your book. Moving to business life, you mentioned uh, fairly early on that about 20% of potential mutual gains, uh, you know, are not realized, are left on the table in business negotiations. And it really piles up a lot of loss value over time. What goes wrong in a business thing? And you also have a favorite hack here, which is the dessert tray. So I want to make sure you explain what that is. Sure. Yeah. In business negotiations, it's it's kind of fascinating. Most people think that if they reach an agreement, then that must have been win-win. I mean, presumably, if you agreed and I agreed, I guess we're happy. But that's not quite it. Usually those people are cutting the orange in half. Actually, just yesterday, I was working with a group of folks in the insurance industry, and we were doing some role plays where there was the equivalent of that orange. I mean, we certainly didn't do the sisters and the orange, but we did a business situation that had an orange. And what I found is, is that a lot of the the great majority did not find the orange. It was about 20% or less. So the dessert tray method that you mentioned is one of my favorite hacks. And what that means is that instead of me making one proposal, hey, Dan, you know, I suggest we do the following, and then presumably you counteroffer, and then I make a concession and we slowly creep toward a middle ground, 
The dessert Sac tray. Sacrificing along the way, yes. Correct. Sacrificing along the way, making concessions. Um, the dessert tray method involves, I come into you with a whole tray of options. And here's the magic words, all of equal value to myself. And I say, Dan, there's many roads to Rome. I'm mixing a lot of metaphors. I guess that's a character <laughs> flaw. There's many roads to Rome. We could do A, B, or C. Why don't you choose? Now, you might say, you might reject everything. You might say, I'm insulted by all of these proposals that you've made. And that's my opening. I can say, Dan, I did not mean to insult you. Educate me and enlighten me. Which one of these desserts is the least reprehensible? Then I can do, in some sense, reverse engineering, backwards induction, and realize, hmm, Dan seemed to really like the creme brulee. I mean, I'm again mixing a metaphor here. And then I can start to realize, huh, the option B, let's say the creme brulee, was the one that, you know, had me doing more of the, you know, internet marketing, huh? That's what Dan cares about. So then I can start to make some educated inferences about what you care about. And this is a great strategy to use if one or both of us does not trust the other party. So I don't have to kind of open my heart and start to verbalize a lot of stuff. You know, I can kind of see, hmm, what's Dan, you know, what's Dan liking in terms of what I'm proposing? So that's the dessert tray method. Don't just send, you know, one offer over the negotiation tennis court net. Send three and see what they return. Yeah, no, and I, I liked it a lot for another reason, which is it also can keep the anger down. Anger is often emotion about wanting to control our destiny. Here, by giving the dessert tray, you have framed it in a way, but at the same time, you're giving control back across the net, to use your tennis analogy, and they can decide how they're going to work with it. So I, I thought it was, it was wonderful. Um, virtual. So virtual uh, has its own interesting dynamics. You talk about P charisma versus e-charisma. You talk about the stress of emails. What do you want to tell us about the, the really essentials of virtual negotiations? Yeah, and that's what I'm, little did I know when I was writing the book before the pandemic, it would probably become the most important section. But several years ago, way before we even knew what the word pandemic was, I did a research study that a lot of people thought, well, that's a waste of time. And the research study involved people negotiating via email over about a week or more. And I had a little twist. And the twist was sometimes these folks had a five minute pre-negotiation conversation with their opponent. Sometimes they didn't. And I actually called it schmoozing, um, which I think is kind of a slang term that just means you and I are kind of, you know, kind of, you know, talking about things off topic. It was, Dan, it was absolutely amazing what that five minutes did for the remainder of the week. And so we published an article we call Schmooze or Lose. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is, is that one thing we know about virtual communication is people get down to business. You know, they, they get on their Zoom, they get on their WebEx, they get on their whatever, their conference call, and it's just like, buy low, sell high, here's the deal. <laughs> when we're in person, we naturally schmooze. How was the weekend? How was that turkey? What, you know, how are the kids? So we call it the virtual handshake. 
So if you can take five minutes before jumping into business, I think it's going to pay back not only in terms of the financial returns, we know that, but also in terms of the the trust and, and the camaraderie and, and the goodwill. Makes sense to me. And is that part of e-charisma or is e-charisma something more and different than that? I think it's part of e-charisma, but uh, e-charisma is, is definitely a larger uh, concept. And uh, one of the things that I have found is, is that the people who command the room in a physical space are not necessarily the people who command the virtual space. Because quite frankly, uh, we can only see your collar. We don't see that gorgeous suit. We don't know how tall you are. We can't, you know, there's a lot of things that are not present virtually that influence, you know, power and, and kind of charisma. So what I'm telling people is, is that when you and I are communicating virtually, much, 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 much more about your substance. What I'm finding in my own classes, Dan, is is that the people who seem to be thought leaders, kind of emergent thought leaders, are the people who have something to say, uh, and they get to the point quickly, and then they have a way of kind of inviting other people to, in some sense, stay on that train of thought. It's much less about the nonverbal body language and, you know, I don't know what they call it, man spread, negotiators, you know, kind of, you know, like no one cares, you know, when we're communicating virtually about that. So I've been working with a lot of folks on how to, I've been working with sales folks on how to bring that e-charisma to the customer client relationship, right? And you know, what you want to do is show them that you, you're a substance matter expert, but you're humble. All makes sense to me. I, I could easily go on with this for another half hour, but uh, we're going to try to wrap it up here. Lee, I want to thank you so much for having been a guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 31, Negotiating at Home, at Work, and Virtually with my guest, Lee Thompson. She is the author of Negotiating the Sweet Spot, the Art of Leaving Nothing on the Table. To check out other episodes or my books or other activities, please visit my company's website, at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for Lee, you can email it to me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating or review online. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. Today, I'll end with this quote from Margaret Atwood's nonfiction book, Negotiating with the Dead, A Writer on Writing. Granted, it's only tangentially on the art of negotiation, but nevertheless, here it is. She writes, it's somewhat daunting to reflect that hell is possibly the place where you are stuck in your own personal narrative forever, and heaven is possibly the place where you can ditch it and take up wisdom instead. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm-hmm.